In today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking about Tesla FSD version 10 progress, a study showing decreased driver attention when using autopilot, the revamped EV tax credit proposal in the US, and SpaceX's big launch last night. And unlike usual, Ricky is not here this week. He's traveling. So I'm being joined by Alex from Ticker Symbol U. How you doing, Alex? I'm doing excellent. I was going to make a joke about me being Ricky, but having been having not been outside in a while, and that's why I look this way, but... You know, I'm happy to be here. You you have the shaved head thing going down. That's which is right. Really, it's the requirement to be on the show is you have to have a shaved head. So you yep. pass that test. So first off, we're talking about the Tesla full self-driving V10 that was released recently. And it's making a lot of, you know, of course, there's a thousand YouTube videos that pop up. And so many people are kind of sharing their experience from the beta program. And this is the one that Elon said was going to be mind-blowing. And what I find funny is the article I'm showing here is is not mind-blowing, but it shows progress. And there's a different story that says the exact opposite, which is it is mind-blowing. So I just saw the Heather's there's different takes on what we're seeing from the autopilot upgrades. But the one thing that seems to be coming through all the videos that I've seen is that V10 does look like it's shown significant progress, but there is still a ways to go. And one of the people that I um, follow is uh, Rob Maurer from uh, Tesla Daily, and his initial video showed no interventions. The thing was flawless when he was using it. But since then, he's talked on his podcast about how he's never had a flawless sense. He's had issues here and there. And from his takeaway, it is clearly a ways to go before it's final. And this kind of comes back to one of the reasons I wanted to kind of talk about this on the show is it kind of comes back to the whole notion of Elon time versus real time. And he's kind of always kind of oversold the deadlines. He says that this is going to basically be fully featured this year. He said the same thing last year. Now we are seeing major progress, but everything I'm seeing shows that it's like way, way, way off. And I'm curious what your take is on the story. Sure. Yeah. So I I think one of the things that's weird about artificial intelligence is that you don't really always see where the progress is being made, right? Like the results could look the same, but how they get there could be much quicker, much more efficient. They're much more confident in the results and so on. And so the end product might be um, sort of lost on the end user, but under the hood, a lot of things have changed. Right. So I think this is an example why Elon might think this is mind blowing is because, you know, now the autopilot is seeing lines with much more accuracy. It's much more confident in the decisions it does decide to make. And the the way it arrives at those decisions could be much more fast, much more efficient, you know, much smarter about how, uh, you know, all the data comes together to make that decision in the first place. But to the end user, it's like, uh, it's just doing what it did last time. I don't see what the big deal is, right? Um, and I think that's where the disconnect is. So in this case, I actually think there is two sides to that story, right? Um, The side Elon sees because he's working with Andre Karpathy and the AI team very closely, and he's, you know, peeking under the hood, so to speak. And then what we see as people who just push the update button and go, uh, what changed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I've worked in software development for a long time and it was the same thing. It's like the engineering team could spend a month doing an entire like rewrite of something. And it's a significant change behind the scenes and that makes things so more, so, so much more efficient. But then the users are like, it feels just like it did last time. Where's the big change? Yeah. But for this, it's like, it's clear that there are improvements because like there are, in these videos, there are people like uh, that did Lombard Street in San Francisco showing it went all the way down Lombard without a single interaction. And the people even said, 
it did, it's never done this before. It's always screwed up one or two of those turns, and it's this is the first time. So it's like little itty bitty things that are working. But at the same time, it's like you got Galley from uh, Hyperchange in his video. It does some what I took as frightening maneuvers going <laughs> by the monorail drive that he was doing. Clearly, it's doing better, but it still has a ways to go. And so for me, it's just one of those kind of there's that disconnect again between what Elon says and how the public interprets it. And it's not that Elon's trying to be deceptive. I just think there's a difference in how he communicates as an engineer and how people can interpret what he's saying and what the reality of the situation is. And I also think that there's people that think autopilot, I mean, full self-driving is coming much sooner than it actually is. It's, it, it's, it's not even half-baked yet. It's, it still needs more time in the oven from everything I've been seeing. The interesting thing about artificial intelligence and software like this, uh, you know, it can be 99% of the way there for yep. years and 99% just isn't good enough, right? Like mm -hmm. you need to be 99 point at least six nines, I believe, right? To pass the smell test for Congress, to pass the safety tests, to pass all the transportation board tests, to, you know, be able to claim all these things about safety and accident statistics and all that. So, you know, we have this car that's able to drive itself probably literally more than 95% of the time, which let's be frank, is much better than most drivers can drive yes. their car. Yes. And that's just not good enough, right? And yep. Elon knows that, and Tesla knows that, and Tesla drivers know that. And I think where the real confidence comes from is no one else is really even 95% there. And it's clear that Tesla is making progress even above that 95%. And that's exciting when you can get in your car, push a button, and all of a sudden the cars learn something new. You know, I've, I was reading comments like, the car drives like a 13-year-old boy who, you know, stole his parents' keys and is in the car, right? It's <laughs> yes. so like, that's a yeah. pretty good driver. Last year, it was driving like a 7-year-old boy, right? Like, yeah. and tomorrow, maybe it's like a 16-year-old boy. And then like next year, all of a sudden, it's, hey, it's like a 21-year-old driver who's been driving for three years or four years. And then, yep. you know, this experienced truck driver. And then one day, it's like, oh, it drives like the best race car driver on the planet and it beats them in like automated timed laps right so i think we're actually you know the jokes are getting funnier and funnier as they get closer and closer to like wait a minute I, i'm 20 whatever right it's like so when you're comparing it to a 20 year old driver you know now you're comparing it directly to me so yeah but that, that also brings up the whole robo taxi because the whole sales pitch behind this is when full self-driving is available they're going to flip on the robo taxi fleet and it's going to start making all this extra money for the company what is your take from a business, like you're all about investments. It's like, I'm curious what your take is on how this is looking and progressing from an investment point of view. Like what's your take on it? Yeah, so I think this, we're definitely still in the uh, early proof of concept stage, right? Um, once you have a self-driving car, you're still, in my opinion, very far from having a robo-taxi. The taxi experience is much more than just getting from point A to point B. You know, it needs to automatically collect money. It needs to automatically think about its next passenger and plan its route and all that stuff. You know, it's very different being able to drive a car and manage a taxi network, right? Yeah. For example, I'm certainly qualified to drive a car. I'm probably certainly not qualified <laughs> to drive a taxi and do all these things I just don't even know about from the business perspective. Right. Um, and then the second part of that uh, is that once you – it's not going to be a – I don't think it will be a flipped switch in the sense that, okay, he pushes a button and then all of these cars are now just businesses, right? They're self-contained taxis. There's a lot of business decisions that Tesla needs to make like, uh, you know, what does it mean when a private owner owns one car 
versus a fleet owner who owns a fleet of Teslas specifically designed to make a profit as a robo taxi. You know, right. is that really the same business model? Like I leave my garage door open now, I flip a button and tell it, hey, here's one, I don't use the car, so here's one you can go and make me money. I don't think that's a switch that gets flipped. I think that's a serious business unit that needs to get developed and tested and refined. And what happens if my car gets into an accident while it's out and about, I'm not in it, it's not, and then somebody else is in it, right? It's like, there are all these challenges with, you know, small scale, you know, owning a fleet of one residential robo taxis versus sort of, um, what we have today, which is full-fledged, mature, you know, ride-hailing networks, taxi networks, and so on. So that's my take. Right. And that kind of actually leads us into the next story, which is about Tesla Autopilot. Now, there's a study that's being, it's an ongoing uh, study that's been done. It used to be led by Lex Friedman, who uh, used to lead the study at MIT. He's moved on, but the study is still going, and it's looking at autopilot drivers and how they use autopilot and the safety around it. And the most recent version of the study just came out, and it showed, as the title says right here, Tesla Autopilot, Re Autopilot results in decreased driver attention, a new study finds. And one of the comments was, they specifically found that drivers would look more at the center screen. The model replicates the observed glance pattern across drivers. The model's components show that off-road glances were longer with Autopilot active than without at their frequency characteristics, as their frequency characteristics changed. Driving-related off-road glances were less frequent with autopilot active than in manual driving, while non-driving-related glances to the down-center stack areas, the screen, were the most frequent and the longest at around two seconds per glance, which is kind of a, <laughs> a long time to be looking away from the road when you're supposed to be paying attention. Um, and the interesting thing here is, before I toss this to you for your take, is we've talked about this before the show just a little bit of there's the kind of juxtaposition of how the study shows when you have autopilot or self-driving features, people tend to get more relaxed. I mean, Waymo found the same exact thing through internal testing when they were starting their program is that people get a little too much too confident in the system and tend to relax a little too much. What's your take on this? Yeah, so I think there's really two sides to this story, right? Um, you know, you mentioned Galley from Hyperchange earlier, and I think this is another great example. You know, he often talks about how driving is a stressful activity for him, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that autopilot and full self-driving let him do is just relax more. The car's just taking some of that responsibility off of his plate. And he's, you know, I'm sure he, just like every other human being, is looking away from the road occasionally uh, and so on. But really, that makes him able to take these longer road trips and no, he's not going to be stressed out in the process, right? right? So I think the two sides to the story are, if you're the type of driver that really pays attention, you just became a safer driver because the car is handling some of the things for you and you're paying the same amount of attention so that attention is spread over fewer tasks. Mm -hmm. The other side of that story is you can spend a little less attention and thus be a little less stressed because the car is taking some of that off your plate and you're still maintaining the level of safety you had before you had those features. And there's some balance and recalibration that needs to happen between those two states, right? Paying as much attention and too little attention to safely drive that we're all gonna have to go through as these cars get smarter and take more responsibilities off our plates as drivers. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the safety because it's like, just because the dis it might be more distracting and you're taking your eyes off the road for two seconds, there's a safety balance here. And it's like, so just because it's a little more distracted, does that necessarily mean it's less safe? And statistics are kind of showing, if you if you ask Tesla, Tesla according to their statistics, 
it is safer, which actually I did want to bring up just really quick, the um, NHTSA investigation, how they're looking into uh, autopilot. They've actually requested self-driving data of pretty much all other manufacturers. They've asked the same for the same exact data from Toyota, Honda, Ford, you name it, from 12 different companies because they want to do a full comparison, like an apples to apples comparison for safety records from every company to actually try to understand how much safer these features actually are and if there's kind of a fallacy going on where we're kind of fooling ourselves so that it's safer. I'm really curious to see what they come out with in the end. I I'm, I'm kind of in Tesla's camp a little bit on this, where I do believe their data shows that it is actually safer. And as somebody who uses the features, I can tell you I feel safer using it. I do I do fall into that camp where I might glance down at the screen a little longer than I should when I'm using autopilot. But I go, long road trips are no longer exhausting to me because of that feature. That assist feature has made long trips very relaxing. I'm a little more, like, when I am looking at the road, I'm a little more focused. I don't have to worry about the car itself. I'm, like, looking around and seeing cars around me and being a little more aware of the situation. So it's like I'm finding myself less stressed. Like you were talking about galley. It's like it it removes that stress, and after a six-hour drive, you feel pretty good. So it's like I imagine what they're going to find is that this is a safer system, not just for autopilot, but for all of these systems. I bet they're going to find something very consistent across all the the manufacturers. It's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there's actually a third case that I didn't think about until you just said that. Um, There are people who are already pretty distracted drivers, right? For example, people who eat in their car, people who have children in their car and spend much longer time glancing in the rearview mirror while moving forward for like to give you a very specific example, right? So what the car is doing in those cases is obviously making them much safer, right? Because they're not really elevating to that level of, hey, I'm consistently maintaining my perspective on the road and whatever. They're already distracted. They were doing that before these features. So now these features are just taking stuff off their plate. They're equally distracted because they have children in the backseat still. And what's happening is they just became much safer drivers because that gap between where they were and where they should be is starting to close with these features, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? Precisely. So, yeah, I'm curious to see, like, how they map that on to, like, all these different scenarios, including that one. Yeah, exactly. So next story, to jump over to a story that I'm going to try to not get on my soapbox for, but uh, we're going to be talking about this new revamped EV tax credit here in the U.S. And the latest state of the proposal for this is, um, let me just get to the numbers. Um, A lot of you who are watching probably are aware of some of these numbers, but the way the new EV tax credit here is going to work in the U.S. is they're removing the the cap for a limit per manufacturer, which means Tesla will once again uh, be able to take advantage of this. So there's no more $200,000 vehicle limit. Uh, There's going to be a $7,500 incentive that will be available at point of sale, which means it's no longer a tax credit. You can get it off the vehicle right right off the top. And that's for vehicles that have over a 40 kilowatt hour battery. If you're smaller than 40 kilowatt hours, it would be a $4,000 incentive, which I'll get to in a minute, which there's something about that that's kind of crazy. Uh, The other thing is there's an additional $4,500 if it's assembled at a union factory here in the U.S. Another $500 for EVs that have battery packs that contain more than 50% of their components made here in the U.S. And it's kind of like this potpourri where you could end up getting $4,000 off of a car or you could end up getting like twelve dollars or $13,000 off a car, all depending on where the car is built and who built it here in the U.S. And 
there's two factors here. We've talked about this before on the show is the union angle of this is crazy. And what reason I brought this story up is that it's Honda and Toyota are now basically crying foul because they don't have unions in their U.S. factories, and that's going to hit them as well as Tesla. And so they're, they're kind of saying this isn't fair for us. Uh, so there's the union angle. The other angle is the smaller battery packs. It basically makes that this incentive works for hybrid vehicles. And that to me is just bananas because if you look at this list, here's all the vehicles that would technically qualify for this new credit and here's what the credit would give you. You could get anywhere between $4,7500 off of a hybrid vehicle that are currently sold today and many of these are really good selling vehicles already. They do not need an incentive. And hybrid vehicles batteries sometimes cost as little is $1,000, and yet you're going to knock $4,000 off the price? It makes no sense. And I, I, I was a former hybrid owner. I used to drive a Fusion Energy Hybrid, and uh, most plug-in vehicle owners don't plug in their cars because you're talking about getting 20 miles of range when you plug it in, and then after that, it just turns into a regular hybrid. I was obsessive about plugging it in because I wanted to eke every battery electric mile out of that car I could, but I'm unusual. For that. <laughs> so the fact that they're going to be incentivizing cars that are already hot sellers today and don't need the incentive is just bananas. This, to me, my takeaway from this entire EV tax credit is it's a horrible, horrible, it, they're incentivizing all the wrong things. And I really hope that they reevaluate this. I've heard that they are. I've heard that there's some pushback from some senators and representatives that are kind of pushing back. Uh, I know there's somebody from Michigan, the home of Big Auto, is also starting to kind of push back on this, which surprised me because that's like the home of the United Autos, Autos Workers Association. So it kind of surprised me when I heard that. But what is your take on on this? Do you have a Do you have a take? Yeah. So I, I, I as usual, I have multiple takes. Right, I'm <laughs> okay. the guy who could talk forever. Um, I I want to separate out the the two things, right? Because I think they're really important. The union thing, I agree, is probably not the right way to do this. Because now you're incentivizing building the car company a certain way instead of building the car a certain way, right? So I think it shouldn't be about who is building the car as much as what the car provides and what the car doesn't emit into the environment and like sort of the incentives around the product being built, not the way or by whom it's being built, right? Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, you still want to neutralize your carbon footprint when making the product, but you know, whether the worker is a union worker or not, doesn't do that, in my opinion, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, incentivizing. I don't think it's bad to incentivize cars that are already popular. For example, if there was an incentive to um, buy a Model 3, right? If a Model 3 had some unique incentive, just because it was popular, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. What I will say is by incentivizing smaller batteries, what you're doing is you're sort of taking away from the cars that are fully electric and the cars that are leading the charge, no pun intended, when it comes to, you know, changing the way, changing our environmental footprint, changing the types of cars that are driven on the road and all that. So I think the unfortunate truth is these incentives incentivize actually one step back, right? Because hybrids are now much more profitable because of that smaller battery pack than going full electric at the cost of that expensive undercarriage, that expensive skateboard battery pack. Um, and that's a shame. You know, I think I think these incentives should be about engineering and environmental progress. And so far, they don't seem to be. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it. It's, it's they're incentivizing the how a company is structured, where they should be incentivizing what the end user like. What is the benefit to the consumer, not the manufacturer yeah. itself and the environment, right? Yeah. And the one thing I would kind of nitpick on what you just said about the small batteries, I'm not against them incentivizing small batteries because it has not. It's not the size of the battery. It's more about uh, is it fully electric versus is it still using fossil fuels? Because there's companies like Arkimoto who are making the FUV, which is just a really cool, fun, quirky company making a really cool product. We actually talked to the CEO uh, last week. Um, that has a very small battery pack. It's like there should be incentives that apply to vehicles like that, but it's pure electric. It's not burning fossil fuels. So it's like I, I, I think there needs to be some kind of carve out that basically says hybrids do not apply. It does. You just can't do it with a hybrid. Sure, that's a great that's a great point, and it definitely my point around the small battery was assuming a full sized car. Therefore, a small battery equates it to a hybrid. But absolutely agree that the fact that it's fully electric is what matters. Exactly. So next, the next story we were going to talk about is something that was kind of fun that happened last night. It's kind of, in my opinion, a really big deal. Uh, SpaceX, SpaceX launched their Inspire Four launch last night successfully with uh, four civilians into space. And you might say, well, we've been talking about billionaires to space for the past couple months, it feels like, and you would absolutely be correct about that. The difference here is that these civilians were sent into deep space. Uh, they were, well, not deep, deep space, but they were sent higher than the Hubble telescope and the International Space Station. They are, they're basically right now orbiting the Earth at about 575 kilometers, which is way higher than... Jeff Bezos went at 100 kilometers, way higher than what, you know, Virgin Galactic did at about 80 kilometers. And those guys only went up for a few minutes and came back down. It was basically just a little arc. Uh, this is a full orbit. They're going to be up there for three days, and they're going around the Earth at about you know, 15 orbits per day. Uh, this is kind of the blowing the door open for the future of space travel. And the fact that this shows, here's four people just like you and me, regular schlubs that are being sent into space. Because I don't know about you, growing up, astronauts always were portrayed as better than the rest of us. They're like pure specimens. They are physically fit. They're mentally strong. And they're like, they have to be, you know, the real, the true grit to be able to do this kind of stuff. And this puts it more in reach where it's looking more like, oh no, anybody can go to space. Uh, here's, here's a one of the people, her name is Haley. She was a childhood cancer survivor from St. Jude. And she now works at St. Jude. And she's in space. And she's she's got a rod in her leg. She is, you know, a cancer survivor. And she's flying around in space right now. There's a, a, a data engineer. Uh, one of the other guys, he's a data engineer. He's he's His name's Christopher. He's up there. And I, I identify with him so much because it's like if just a regular schlub, you know, sitting at a computer all day and now he's flying around in space. I so wish that could be me at some point. I don't know if it will be, but this has kind of been a, a lifelong dream of mine to go to space and it feels more attainable than it's ever felt in my life. I just probably have to raise like a hundred million dollars to do it, but it still seems a lot more attainable now. now what, what's your take on what SpaceX is doing and what this launch kind of represents? Well, my first take is you're $5 closer thanks to that super chat, which is excellent, <laughs> yes. right? You know, yes. um, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, there's definitely a huge, huge, huge step in engineering prowess between SpaceX up here and the next two Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think 
the ability to democratize access to space is a cause that we should all care about. I think the inevitable future of humanity is in the stars. My channel trailer has always been about space, you know, our access to space, our interstellar journey as one shared collective humanity. And I think really SpaceX is leading that charge in a few ways, right? Like, uh, A, it's one of the things that I, I just want to say is SpaceX reused a rocket to bring these people into space, right? Yes. It's a it's a rocket that they're, they're not on a new rocket, guys. They're on a used tin can that got used again to bring new people into space, which is incredible, right? That's something we talk yeah. about with cars a lot and planes a lot. And now we're finally talking about used spaceships, right? I think that's like a real market differentiator, right? Hey, uh, you want to take a ride on my used spaceship? Like, you know, who would have ever thought that's a sentence we get to say with any sort of seriousness in our lifetime? And here it is, four regular people in a used tin can traveling around the earth, you know, for days at a time, right? Like it's absolutely unbelievable. It's science fiction meets reality, right? Yeah. They're really pushing the envelope. And I I, I watched the live stream and they actually had, they pointed out a couple times in the live stream when they were waiting for it to go off of the reason the bottom of the rocket's a different color than the top is because it's been used several times now. It's taken this flight up for GPS. It's taken this flight up for GPS. I love the fact they had to point out, like, it doesn't look pristine and the colors are different because that's actually a used portion of the rocket. And they also pointed out that the Dragon capsule they were in was also reused because it took astronauts to the space station a while back. So there was so much of this rocket that was being repurposed and reused. This is to me, it's like, you know, the space shuttle was sold as this. Oh, a reusable rocket. It's going to go up and down. But yet it never was cost effective. It was crazy expensive to run. Uh, I, I grew up watching that thing take off all the time. Uh, this is completely different. This is private companies finding the cheapest, most effective ways to get people into space and get those costs down. So not only is it cheaper to get satellites into space or to colonize Mars, but to do space tourism. I mean, you mentioned that SpaceX is ahead because they are absolutely are ahead. But I kind of look at it as they're all in separate timelines. So like Blue Origin may be behind, but they're going to, I don't know if they'll catch catch up, but they're they are in a separate timeline. They're slightly behind. But at some point, Blue Origin is going to be doing things just like this. So it's the more companies that we can allow to kind of like flourish, I think this is going to become more and more competitive. The prices will continue to come down. And maybe by the time I'm 70, I'll be able to go to space. <laughs> I think it's a real reality. You know, yeah. we're, we're definitely laughing. But I, I think you and me, if we want it bad enough for real as regular people, we'll be able to make a video from space. No kidding. Guys, I'm in space. I'm logging into YouTube 3.0 or whatever from space. No joke. Yeah. The other th side of it is to me, it's like I've, I've always thought it's funny, like how there's still flat earthers. <laughs> it's like... How are you going to write <laughs> yeah. off that the Earth is round when you can actually just get into a rocket yourself and go to space and see? Yeah, see, it's 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 not flat. It's it's a round sphere that we're, we're going around. Um, the bottom of my video is completely flat, so check me. <laughs> I love that. So I think that's about it for today. We should probably wrap up. Any closing thoughts that you had? Tesla, probably the Tesla FSD beta 10, probably much more exciting than we're giving it credit for while being a little less exciting than Elon's giving it credit for. Yeah. Space, a lot closer than we think. You know, I think everyone watching today has a serious shot of being up in space if they want it bad enough within their lifetime. Really excited to see what the transportation study reveals about all of the data for self-driving and, you know, driver assistance packages. And I'm curious to see what ends up happening with um, incentives for 
EVs and hybrids as well, including, you know, the structures of how these companies are built now with the union versus non-union argument. Um, so lots of exciting news in the technology space, the innovation space, and of course, you know, the renewable energy space as well. I thought this was a really cool episode and thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being on. As usual, you're one of our favorite guests to have on. And why don't you tell everybody where they can find you online? Oh, sure. So my name is Alex. I run a channel called Ticker Symbol U. It's a channel that invests in the investor by doing technology education focused on disruptive technologies that are featured in some of the best publicly traded companies on the market, like Tesla, like Palantir, you know, like Amazon, all of these companies that are using advanced technology to drive the world forward. So come check it out if you're interested in technology and investing in the future. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already and hit that notification bell so you don't miss an episode. We're live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And Ricky should be here next week. And you can always listen to the podcast version on the show at viceversa.show. As always, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in the next one.